Hey everyone, Simba Collier here, and you are listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Vile Chulos. He's the co-founder and CEO of Outer Bounds, a company developing modern human-centric ML. He's also the author of Effective Data Science Infrastructure, which is published by Manning. Prior to Outer Bounds, he developed infrastructure for machine learning for over two decades. He worked as an ML researcher in academia and as a leader at numerous companies, including Netflix. While he was at Netflix, he led the ML infrastructure team that created Metaflow, a popular open source framework for data science infrastructure. Eli, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'd love to kick off by just learning more about the story of Metaflow. Maybe you could just take us back to the beginning, like why was Metaflow created and yeah, the story from there. Yeah, well, our origin story goes back to Netflix. So I used to lead ML and AI infrastructure at Netflix. Of course, like I'm pretty sure that like everybody here knows that Netflix has been doing machine learning recommendation systems for a very long time. The interesting thing that happened around like 2017 timeframe was that beyond recommendations, Netflix started to be really interested in applying ML to many kinds of use cases across the company. So you can imagine that a company of Netflix's size has potential use cases for ML and AI really across the company, like throughout the kind of the production process and so forth. So anything from natural language processing to computer vision to, of course, all kind of businessy data science problems and so forth. Hence, infinite appetite to make the company more sophisticated. And then they had the same problem that many companies have even today, which is that on the one hand, they had like a good amount of engineering infrastructure, all kinds of like a cloud stuff, compute, orchestration, data platform, over 100 people working on the data platform. And then they had the whole like a data science machine learning organization. But there was a bit of a gap between the two. The, the engineering infrastructure that was never really built only for machine learning was really hard to access by these machine learning people. And, and really, we started Metaflow to bridge that gap make it easier for the data scientists, the ML engineers to access like all the kind of the parts of infrastructure that you always need. That How do I run my models at scale? And like, how do I orchestrate these systems in production? How do I keep track of everything? And that happened like back in the day, 2018 uh, timeframe. Then Metaflow got really popular inside Netflix. So then like we open sourced that in 2019. Then many companies started using Metaflow and then reaching out to Netflix and like asking for support. Like, can we run this on Azure? And like, Netflix was only on AWS. And then it became a bit uncomfortable, like telling everybody that, no, no, I mean, Netflix is not that interested in supporting those features. It really started feeling this uh, machine learning. Of course, this was actually like before the chat GPT, obviously, like not so much AI back then. But I mean, it was really growing rather fast. So then like finally in 2021, we decided that, okay, I mean, now it's a time to kind of uh, really start helping other companies properly as well. And that's when we launched Autobombs. Awesome. I want to go back. One thing that I think doesn't get spoken enough about is how different each of the workflows and different ML is. Like you spoke about NLP, you talked about recommender systems. Sure, there's a lot of like fraud, tabular data type things. There's also surely in Netflix uh, computer vision use cases as well. Do you find that all those use cases can be properly satisfied of like one MLOps platform? Do you think that we need different kind of verticalized solutions for computer vision versus recommender systems versus NLP? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great observation. And it definitely feels, especially these days, as kind of like ML and AI is a bit like eating the world, that the use case is so diverse that it kind of feels that even putting them under the same umbrella kind of really doesn't do justice. On the other hand, it's kind of like software engineering. I mean, you could say the same thing about software engineering that like, in a way, I mean, they're like such a kind of a big difference, let's say doing whatever, like embedded devices for cars versus websites versus mobile apps. 
that in a sense, I mean, talking about software engineering holistically kind of doesn't make sense. But then on the other hand, there are like some commonalities. And that's really like the way how we have been thinking about things as well, that there are like a certain foundational needs. And like, if you really, really think that, okay, I mean, what is common for all these use cases? And well, it's kind of easy to say that data, well, duh. I mean, like you always need data. I mean, that doesn't go anywhere. The other thing is that typically you do need some compute. Sometimes you need a little bit of compute. Sometimes you need like a crazy amount of compute. But I mean, like compute is actually like a really one, quite a differentiating feature compared to, let's say, classical software engineering. And then the fact that like these things always become a part of a larger system. I mean, everybody knows at this point that it's not only the model, but it's everything around the model and the kind of the feature pipelines and like whatnot. So you need to kind of orchestrate these things. And then the fact that this is such a kind of a empirical science, nobody ever like just builds an ML system like from a get-go and says that, okay, I mean, like we deployed it once and now we are done. It's always iterative process. So it kind of feels that there are these really foundational elements that are, of course, like a super broad and like compute comes in different forms. Data is unstructured, structured, semi-structured, all kinds of things. But at least like these high-level concepts seem to be quite common. So yeah, I mean, depending like what's your perspective, everything looks different or like in some sense, there are definitely like some commonalities. Can you break down the Metaflow abstraction? Like what does Metaflow do? It really starts from the fact that we think that there are these foundational questions that, okay, how do we access data? How do we do compute? How do we do orchestration, meaning that like we have some kind of a workflow, some kind of a system that we need to orchestrate. And then like, how do we keep track of like a versioning, experiment tracking, all that good stuff. Now, as many of the listeners here know, there are different um, solutions and like different MLOP solutions, even like for each one of these layers. So you can use whatever data warehousing for data and then like many compute platforms are available. Like you can do your Kubernetes, whatever. And then there are many nice orchestration systems. You can use Astronomer, you can use Airflow, you can use Daxter and so forth. Now, the challenge oftentimes is that like when you have like a five or six different tools, none of which are typically specifically built for ML and AI, it becomes really hard to kind of actually like build systems effectively. And what Metaflow has been doing since the early days is that we provide a consistent Python API over all these layers. So somewhat of like a nice way to access data. There's easy way to access compute in different ways. I mean, like also there's the different ways how you can scale your workloads. You can actually like have the API for building the workflows, which is kind of the first order kind of a concept in the Metaflow land. So that's a bit of a difference to, let's say, how you would build things, let's say, starting from a notebook, where it's more like, okay, let's build the model. And then you figure out that, wait a minute, now we have a model. How do we build the system? And Metaflow has been always much more about that. Okay, how do we build the end-to-end working system from the get-go? Got it. It's almost like trying to tie experimentation. Because one thing that makes ML, like you've already said, it, the iterative process. With software engineering, if I told you I was throwing away the majority of the stuff I was doing, be bad. Like, you shouldn't do that. But in ML, be completely normal. It's more of a science than it is engineering discipline. And so it's more iterative. And inherently, that's why notebooks exist in data science. They don't really exist in software engineering because the promise space is so different. So I guess, is it fair to say that Metaflow attempts to bring those two worlds, a production world, which looks more like engineering, and the experimentation world, which looks more like a science together? Yeah, and like oftentimes we think about that, that you kind of have like a triangle, like where you have this, like a three elements, you have a code. And by the way, I mean, this is an interesting question that there was the Andre Carbati blog post a couple of years back about software 2.0. And there's like one school of thought that like says that, well, do we even need code anymore? I mean, maybe everything becomes one huge LLM, maybe everything becomes one huge DNN and there's no code. Well, 
we happen to believe that like if you look at any company today, there's plenty of code in all ML and AI systems. I mean, so code isn't going anywhere. You have the models and then you have data. So you're going to have this holy trinity of code, data and models. And you always have to kind of like work in this triangle and like kind of making it easy to move between different modalities is, is super important. So I see what you're saying. So this is almost like this. Uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing that everything makes ML different is that, like you said, there is these different artifacts. There's artifact of the model, there's data artifacts, and then there's actually the code itself. And so all these things need to work together. And that also means that there are more things that can break. The data can change and the features drift and now my model isn't working. There's not a good equivalent of that in software engineering because software engineering is much more deterministic where ML is the heuristical problem space. So I guess now that we've kind of laid out Metaflow and laid out some of those abstractions, do people use Metaflow for computer vision use cases? Can you walk me through the differences between using Metaflow for or other bounds for a computer vision use case versus using it for NLP or tabular use case? Yeah, goes back to the fact that we see that something like Metaflow provides really the foundation. We have never envisioned something like Metaflow is really like a turnkey solution that you just push a button and out comes exactly the outcome you want. But it's in a way, I mean, I think the kind of a, the metaphor is a bit overused, but it's kind of like operating system in a sense that it's the foundation upon which then like different teams, oftentimes like they build their own, not only the technical stuff, but also the human workflows, because there's actually the whole like human aspect of building these things. And now let's say using the computer vision as an example that like what we do is that, let's say, if you need to access large amount of GPUs, I mean, that's something that like we help you to do. If you need to have an efficient data loader, so you can, let's say, get terabytes of images or videos from S3, like we have an optimized S3 client for that. Now, like what is exactly is your model? And like maybe you need to do some like a pre-processing, whatever it might be. That is then like a layer that you have on top of the foundation. And that's the philosophy. And the same thing then, like, let's say that you have a whole another side you have some like a very like a vanilla business data science case. You do forecasting, say. And there, like the landscape may look very different. Again, I mean, you do need data, but I mean, the data obviously might live in some kind of a database. And you, as you very well know, I mean, all these questions about like the feature engineering, feature transformations, I mean, that's a whole like a different landscape for structured data. And oftentimes teams may have their own abstractions. I mean, it's a highly domain specific thing as well. And then on the other end, like the models may be much cheaper to train potentially. So then like the focus is kind of like a shifted a bit to different type of questions. That makes sense. And I think that's kind of what I was trying to see and get at. I think it's almost like the orchestration is, is orchestration. In both cases, you have an orchestration pipeline, but the pipelines are very different. And the parts that you maybe are spending more effort on, your vision is going to be very model heavy, typically very like data heavy, but in a different way because you're not doing feature engineering. Like if you're processing in practice tends to be pretty minimal compared to business use cases where the feature engineering is everything and the model is almost like a throw XG boost at it and call it a day. And so I guess by focusing on that layer below, the orchestration layer, you allow people to kind of, you're able to service both cases and provide value in both use cases. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And this is, by the way, like really an interesting question to kind of like think about and then project that like, what will the future look like? I personally like, I would like to see a future where we have a very diverse landscape of different kinds of models and applications, different companies really using their expertise to build different product experiences and building like a very unique models and like thinking about data closely. But then of course, there's the other point of view that like maybe everything becomes just like open AI, LLM, and like maybe that's it and nobody does anything anymore. And like we are of course like much more in the camp that is actually super powerful that like you get these foundational tools upon which then you can build your own experiences. 
But again, if you are more in the camp that I just want to hit an API, I don't want to think about any of that stuff. I mean, then again, I mean, maybe a tool like Metaflow isn't that useful. One thing I definitely want to dive into the AI ML, obviously everyone's thinking about that. But one last kind of line of questioning I'm curious about is outer bounds versus Metaflow. What are the differences between the two? So, yeah, no, I mean, kind of the usual story there that, um, as I mentioned, we started at Netflix and we started in an environment where we were kind of like a standing on the shoulders of giants in a sense that there were really literally hundreds of people, hundreds of engineers who had been building orchestration systems. So over time, Netflix has built, I think, like a five different workflow orchestrators in-house. Massive amount of effort went there. They have over 100 people working on the data platform. They had tens of people like, working on the compute platform. It's a really major engineering effort. And then like on top of this stack, like we were able to layer Metaflow. So then suddenly like you can actually like access all this infrastructure when building ML and AI. Now the challenge is that of course none of that infrastructure is available outside Netflix, right? And like we saw many companies struggling with the fact that of course like a Metaflow helps you to set up, let's say, infrastructure on AWS or GCP and so forth. But I mean still anyone like who has worked with Kubernetes knows that it's actually a complex beast. And like it's not a coincidence that companies like Netflix and Meta and Google and many others have spent a lot of time optimizing these things. So we uh, decided, like, based on all the learnings that we had had, that it would be amazing, like, if we can provide this foundational infrastructure as a managed platform, kind of the same type of experience that we had at Netflix. But then, again, if you have this managed platform, like, you can focus on building your applications, your, like, ML magic on, on top of the platform without having to worry about, let's say, that, like, how do we do gang scheduling on Kubernetes? So, like, how do we get data from Snowflake as fast as possible? Or, and, of course, there are, like, a whole bunch of questions related to just, like, getting the security and policies, data governance, in a good place. And uh, as many of us who are like MLAI practitioners know, it's the kind of uncomfortable truth that um, there's this like a freedom and responsibility that it would be amazing to have the freedom to do anything. But at the same time, in any kind of real business environment, there's the responsibility side of the house. And you can't just like select star everything from Snowflake without considering anything. And you kind of have to be a bit more careful about that. And of course, like on the out-of-bound side, like we want to help enterprises to make sure that the data scientists can really innovate fast, like while like respecting all those things that need to be respected. I guess coming back to like Metaflow, because one thing you've mentioned a few times is how many orchestrators exist. And obviously Metaflow is different in that it is entirely focused on one specific workflow. This is a machine learning workflow, which is very unique and not typically an afterthought. Like you mentioned Airflow, like Airflow was built for a much different, much more traditional data engineering type use case and not ML, which is quite different. I guess there are also other MLOPSy-like orchestrator platforms. There's even people who like are fitting together multiple vendors to kind of build their own platform. From your perspective, what makes uh, Metaflow the best, or at least like very unique? Well, I mean, of course, like I'm very, very biased, so you, you should ask other folks as well. But I can say that maybe one of the kind of the things that like we uh, felt quite strongly and like from the beginning, and like it has felt this has been a big differentiator is that. If you go to the website, we have always talked about this idea of human-centric infrastructure, which was the recognition that although ML and AI are like a super cool, technical, highly challenging kind of engineering challenges and all that stuff, at the end of the day, it is it is people. It is oftentimes people like with very diverse backgrounds even. I mean, like we work with people with background in economics or even social sciences or biology. And like these are people who are comfortable, let's say, using Jupyter notebooks and so forth but definitely not comfortable, even like baking Docker images, many things that engineers take for granted. You know, I mean, just push it through CI, CD and like bake your Docker image. What's the big deal? These are like real inferences for people. So that's why, I mean, like one guiding idea with Metaflow has been to really, really like a focus on the developer experience. 
And of course, like these days, everybody, I mean, you can't find any tool who says that we don't care about developer experience. But then again, I mean, details matter. It's just something that has been like very deeply in our DNA. And whenever like we hear like why people choose to use Metaflow, oftentimes that is the kind of the deciding factor that like besides all the features and of course, like many other tools like provide features as well. It's really like at the end of the day, it is the kind of the data scientist, ML, AI developer experience that really matters. Can you walk through like a case study, maybe a company that started using other bounds or Metaflow and the success they found with it? how it looked before and how it looks after? Well, I mean, one fun example that comes to mind is that there's a company that I guess one could characterize as like the Robin Hood of Europe, the Trade Republic. So what I love about what they have done with the Outer Bounds is that obviously like they are like a pretty sizable company. They had many use cases and like there were some cases where they hadn't used ML in the past and it was more like a heuristic or like engineering kind of like just a simple approach. Thanks to the fact that now they had the platform available and it just gave them confidence to start using ML in the use cases where it hadn't been used in the past. And like there were actually like some amazing people on their side who were able to build some solutions that actually like impacted the company's bottom line right away. So and you can imagine that nothing motivates the company more than actually like seeing that there's kind of a more money like coming to the company. And what's really fun about that is that then it really like kind of got that like the positive feedback loop going that like nothing breeds success as success. And then like giving that confidence that actually like we can use ML for more use cases. And this is actually one of the biggest challenges that we have at many companies. The question is not so much that like, well, is Metaflow better than Airflow? And like we have this thing running on Airflow and like why we should be migrated to Metaflow? I mean, oftentimes, I mean, don't worry about it. We actually like integrate with Airflow if that's what you want to do. The interesting question is more so that what about the thousand other use cases that you haven't dared to address because you felt that it's too hard? This is really the magic of a company like Netflix or what the Trade Republic did, is that they realized that they could be applying ML and AI in so many more use cases. And like when it doesn't take such a long time, when it's not so hard, like when it doesn't require a team of 10 people, I mean, then you can actually like become much more confident that, wait a minute, I mean, we can actually like do this and we can do that. I mean, some of these things work and some don't. don't. I mean, that's a part of the experimentation. But I mean, like when it works, I mean, I hope it can really kind of change the direction of the company. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective and not one that I think gets talked about a lot. Like a lot of the focus on MLOps tends to be very bottom line focused. Like it makes you move faster. It makes you more productive. But there's an enablement, a top line value prop too, which is that it allows you to apply ML much more cheaply, which means you can just apply in places that before it's like this is a major project. Now it's not. It's almost like in a similar way of like CICD and some of the other DevOps things, which is like, yeah, like it's really cheap and easy now. Like I just write this code and I just deploy it. Or before it was like a server set up, I need to figure out like what instances I need to handle. Like there's so much more overhead to release something new. If you have a proper MLOps platform, just like, yeah, I have this idea. Let's just try it. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, then that's fine. It was at least you tried something that wouldn't have been tried before. I want to come back to the MLAI discussion. I guess I'll give you a broad question, which you've touched on already, which is what does the future look like between ML and AI? Are we moving to a future where it's just ChatGPT runs everything and ML is deprecated? Or do we live together? ChatGPT all hype? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, it's kind of fun to see that, especially last year, depending who you ask, you get widely different answers. And I think it's a super exciting time in the industry. Like, there isn't like necessarily even a consensus, so I can give my point of view. I think 
Now, and again, I mean, like I totally know that some people think about this differently. I think techniques like, let's say, focus on the kind of the large language models specifically. I think it's, of course, an absolute game changer, like when it comes to natural language processing. I think that factually, like there are like a certain NLP tasks. Let's say you want to do part of speech tagging or something that like, yeah, maybe LLMs are overkill. But I mean, safe to say that the game has totally changed when anything that comes to language and overall, like when it comes to unstructured data, and that's actually like a huge thing because it used to be so that actually most of the data at companies was really messy and unstructured and nobody dared to even touch it because it was so messy. And now suddenly, thanks to LLMs and of course, like other gen AI techniques in general, suddenly like all these piles of messy, natural language, kind of noisy data are like available. That being said, then like there's actually a huge swaths of other use cases. Like let's say you look at the fraud detection or you look at the convex optimization it's mind-boggling to me to even consider that like how would anyone think that like let's say you're a hedge fund and like you're doing some portfolio optimization and what do you do i mean like go to llm and like you post whatever your stock portfolio and say that okay what should i do and that doesn't make any sense or let's say like you want to do convex optimization or like you want to do operations research obviously like things like this and even like kind of a, many things about in the structured data you want to do forecasting i mean don't do that with llms so I think it feels like quite obvious that like we have an amazing new tool in our toolbox, but I mean, it's not going to overtake all the other tools. What I find super exciting is that first, we have a whole new set of applications that we can build thanks to the kind of the fact that like all the NLP stuff is kind of quote unquote easy. And then also like we can actually enhance all the existing ML applications by let's say that you can take all the unstructured data and you can make it an embedding and you slap the embedding in your ML model and maybe you get lift and that's amazing. So I think that the future like that we are entering is the one like where actually like we have a very healthy mixture of both. I don't know like what's the balance. I wouldn't be surprised if over time there will be more and more like traditional ML applications because also now there's so much more interest in like applying ML and AI and like people are thinking about data more seriously and so forth. So I think that's the kind of the super interesting future. But yeah, no, I mean like I know that there's the other school of thought that which is that okay, I mean you just ask ChatGPT and it gives the answer to everything. Yeah, I'm in your boat too. Maybe it's because we're of the old school. ML generation, where they fit together. It's another tool in our tool set. It kind of reminds you when deep learning, probably around the time you started Metaflow, where like deep learning was like all the rage. Like you just had to say deep learning and you like got the term sheet. And yeah, like traditional ML like is dead now. You don't even need to do feature engineering anymore. You just deep learning will just figure it out for you. Obviously, we can look back and say that that wasn't true at the time, and you can easily point at LMs being an extension of that same idea of deep learning. It is. I mean, like decoder models aren't brand new. I have a similar take in that I think that there are certain use cases where you just need the random forest is going to be or some form of boosted algorithm will just continue to be. It is, I would guess, but today it's by far the most deployed type of model in production. And I think that will still be true in five years. I do think that there will be a whole new set of problems that were never this enablement, like this could never be done before. It was just impossible to even consider doing it. It was either the value compared to the cost just didn't make sense, or it was just so hard to do that you didn't have the in-house expertise to do it. Now it's very easy to throw in ChatGPT. I've already seen people trying to like mix in together traditional ML to create features and feed those features into an LLM to generate an output. Very simple example could be like, I have a traditional model to generate someone's credit score, but then I feed that credit score along with some other features into prompt. And then that prompt gives some form of like saving advice. 
So I do think that these things will live together. And I think that's where things will get interesting. Does Metaflow have like an AI story? Like do people like this Metaflow work with LLM, especially applications today? Yeah, it's actually fascinating when you overall think about like, what do we mean when we talk about AI? And like, it's pretty last year, like there was a lot of commentary, like many people who had never done AI before, like suddenly became AI experts. They all kind of fears and uncertainties and doubts that, oh, what is this AI and runaway AI and like all that stuff. Now, again, I mean, like we have been always like building the foundations. We have been in the trenches. If you actually like think that, okay, what does AI mean today? It means that like you take, let's say a model from Hugging Face, that's a PyTorch model. And let's say you want to do like your own fine tuning and that would be a typical case. So let's say even like you are like really like building everything from the ground up, you are open AI, you want to do the pre-training by yourself. What do you need? You need a big, big bunch of computers. You need these computers work together. Like you need to have the whole like a compute substrate. Though. Honestly, I mean, that is, I think like OpenAI has two kind of secret sources. Like one is the, the all the engineering jobs that they have developed and then the clusters and so forth. And then the other one is the data. So like that engineering side is kind of like what we have been focusing on. Again, I mean, like building from the bottom up, like what Metaflow helps you do today and what we much invested in last year is that let's say you want to do distributed training I mean, and because it might be hard to get the GPUs, the A100s, the H100s. So you want to use smaller GPUs, but you have a bunch of them. You have a 15 of them and you want to do like a Llama 2 fine tuning. Okay, how do you actually do it? And not only like how you do it once, but how do you do it as a part of your actual like AI application? So that's something that like we help you do. And also like, of course, it's kind of interesting that the way how you develop these models, there are still like many commonalities. Again, I mean, it's an iterative process, like still many concepts of experiment tracking, artifact tracking, all that still applies in this new world. And like they have very practical questions about like, where do you save the checkpoints? We have the efficient S3 client and so forth. So we have been like very thoughtfully applying the kind of the foundational elements that we have and seeing how we can help actual companies actually like want to build these AI driven experiences. Let's say like use open source LLMs and like how you can actually like then get, let's say, access to compute cost efficiently and so forth. I think that there are like very much two kinds of companies. Let's say if all you are interested in doing is hitting open AI APIs or something of that sort. Again, I mean, like technically you're not even doing any ML and data science, you're just hitting APIs. So by all means, there are easy ways to do that. But again, I mean, like if you are more on the side that you want to actually build something more unique, I mean, then Metaflow can be very helpful. And I think that it will become more common to see like more custom looking use cases because it allows you to tune things, not just literally fine tuning, but it allows you to control everything. Like if you have a mission critical application, you don't want your open AI endpoint to return like a overloaded resources or whatever, which is quite common or have no control over your response time latency. But for some use cases, it's totally fine. Yeah, I think it's also interesting. One thing I've come to find is that the core problems of ML, my perspective, there's kind of four, let's say, categories, umbrellas. One umbrella is just data, which I'll just kind of broadly say, like dealing with data, creating features, creating training sets, versioning, artifact management, etc. There's training and model, like this keeping track of your runs, your experiment trackers, like actual GPU orchestration. There's deployment, which is like the models in production, and then evaluation. And so there's a lot of companies around each of those verticals. And then obviously there are companies that try to kind of give the whole MLS platform above that. For LLMs, it's almost the same. The big problems, like one, data. Data is still, especially with RAG or fine-tuning, it's still like a very core problem. And it looks very, very similar as it does. The training step is now a fine-tuning step. It's optional, 
but it's still there. Serving, same thing. Like if you want to control your model, which I think is going to be more common, like people deploying their own models, then that's hard. <laughs> like how do you deploy Llama 2 in production at scale? And then finally, as the more obvious one, evaluation. Like how do you make sure it's doing what you want it to do? How do you handle failures, which is very similar to the ML problem, almost exactly the same. The data part is very, very similar as well. So it's interesting that like a lot of it is almost the same, but there are specific things that are very different. Like prompts never existed before. Prompt management is a whole new thing that's only specific to AI. And then on the traditional ML side, you can optimize workflow more because it's much more static, where with LLMs, there's way more variety from just doing an API call to I'm training my own small LLM for a specific task. So, But yeah, it's fascinating to see how much overlap there is between AI and ML. Do you think that MLOps and LLM ops, if I can use that term, will kind of merge more? Do you view them as two very separate categories? What's your take? Yeah, I think that there's the actual like reality, what people are doing and what people need and what people want. And then there's the labeling game. As you remember, like even the term MLOps didn't exist. I think it maybe became popular like around 2019, 2018, something like that. It just didn't exist. It didn't mean that people were not doing the activities. Of course, the activities were very much done. Nobody just called it MLOps. And of course, as always with these labels, like nobody ever like defined that, okay, what are exactly the boundaries of MLOps? So it's kind of like some kind of like a fuzzy thing that, okay, something MLOpsy. And now, of course, like very much the same thing with the LLM ops. And again, I mean, some kind of a fuzzy cloud overlaps with the MLOps partly. Nobody knows. So I think, again, I mean, the important thing is that, like, what are the activities behind the labels? And exactly to your point, there are many, many similar activities, regardless whether you are building an LLM-powered application or, like, traditional ML-powered application. You can call it whatever you want. I mean, you can call it DevOps, you can call it MLOps, you can call it LLMOps, or come up with a new term, that's fine. But I think that the activities matter. And I think it's really important to recognize that things do change. I mean, it's not that, like, everything is always the same. I mean, it's the same thing as... People were struggling for the longest time to understand that, like, why is ML and AI development different than traditional software engineering? And I, I think even today at many companies, there are like this almost like internal friction that like, wait a minute, we have software engineers who can use these workflows quite fine. They just deploy their microservices and Kubernetes. You are like ML people. Why don't you do the same thing? I mean, like, it's just like a fall in line. I mean, let's make life easy. I mean, just do exactly the same thing. But then it feels that, well, this doesn't feel quite right. I would say that it's kind of maybe the same thing now with traditional ML and LLMs that you could say that, okay, I mean, like LLMs such as ML, like do exactly the same thing. But I mean, I would argue that, yes, I mean, people would say that, well, it doesn't quite feel right. There are like some important differences. At the same time, there are absolutely things that like we should learn like from the MLOps side of the house. So I think, again, I mean, that's why we kind of really like try to look from the bottom up that at least like starting from these very basic needs, data compute orchestration, I mean, these are the universals, but then like the nuance differences, like how you actually like make this happen for different use cases. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think that's a pragmatic answer, which is just that the problem spaces definitely have overlap, but there are nuances in each of them. And so we'll kind of see, because I don't think there is a clear LLM workflow yet. Like there is no gold standard. I don't think there's really a gold standard in MLOps, to be honest yet. I don't think there's a company we can point at. And like DevOps, there kind of was. Like you could kind of point at Google or Netflix and be like, yeah, that is the gold standard of DevOps, but there are obviously amazing examples of MLOps, but I've never felt like the, oh yeah, Google does it best. Like just never really felt that way. And I guess the same thing is true of LLMs. I don't think there even exists. The only enterprise grade LLM application, in my opinion, is Copilot. 
GitHub Copilot. And I think everything else is more or less an experimental beta type product. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how these things unfold. Awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much for making the time talking with me about all these diverse topics. And yeah, we'll uh, include some links in the description for people who want to follow up with you and learn more. Thank you again. Thanks for having me.